0: We'll talk about all that right there. All right, dyspnea is difficulty in breathing. That's the medical term for difficulty in breathing. Medical prefix, D-Y-S, means what? Bad or difficult. Bad or difficult. D-Y-S is bad or difficult. And whenever you see the P-N-E-A, we're talking about breathing, lungs, something to do with the respiratory system, but primarily breathing, okay? So dyspnea is bad or difficult breathing. Apnea is what? Apnea. A or N means without. Not breathing. Apnea is not breathing. Eupnea, E-U-P-N-E-A. That's good or easy breathing. All right. So dyspnea is a complaint you will often encounter And again, it doesn't matter why they're not getting oxygenated blood to all all the places they need to. The end result is the same, right? And that is the patient will complain of what? Difficulty breathing. breathing. Wrong chapter, G. All right, difficulty in breathing. It may be from a common cold. Maybe they're congested. Maybe they're having a heart attack. Maybe they have emphysema. There's a million different reasons, like we said. Keep medical problems in mind as you obtain history and perform assessment. Um, dyspnea can be terrifying to the patient. And I'm going to put this on pause for a second. All right, because, you know, we start every, all these chapters off with a little bit of review of anatomy and physiology. The respiratory system consists of all structures that contribute to the breathing process you got the upper airway and you got the lower airway, right? What's the dividing line between the upper and the lower airway? What? Go ahead. Yeah, it's between the vocal cords. That's the glottic opening, G-L-O-T-T-I-C. The glottic opening is the dividing line between the upper uh, respiratory system and the lower. Primarily... What are the, I mean, what are the main structures of the upper respiratory system, upper respiratory tract? It starts where? Neres, mouth. Of course, mouth is a secondary way, right? But your nostrils, your mouth, then when it gets to the back of the throat behind your nose, what's that called? Nasopharynx. And then the back of the throat behind the mouth, oropharynx. And it goes on down into the larynx, which is also known as the, the voice box, right? Because that's where the vocal cord cords are. And in between them is the glottic opening. Um, what are the adventitious airway sounds associated with the upper airway? And these are sounds you don't want to hear, right? What are the bad sounds or adventitious airway sounds that are associated with the upper airway? Somebody said something. No? Wrong? That's the that's other one, brother. That's the other one, too. Snoring. snoring. If you hear snoring, what's the problem? Tongue. The tongue is partially occluding the upper airway. O-P-A, M-P-A, take care of that, right? Okay. What's another sound associated with the upper airway? Gurgling. If you hear gurgling, there, there's fluid in the upper airway. And you instantly do what? Roll them on their side and suction. There you go. Uh, what's another uh, adventitious airway sound that's associated with the upper airway? Wheezing's lower. I think we got wheezing lower down. Yeah? Yeah. Wheezing, rails, ronchi, crackles, we've got them all. But unfortunately, I'm asking about the upper airway. What about a cough? Nah. About a cough? Not with cough. No, and that's not so much a problem because if they're coughing, they at least have a limited ability to protect their own airway because they're, that's why they're coughing. Something's going down the wrong pipe, if you will. Um, strider, what about strider? That is that it's either from trauma or from some sort of reaction in the upper airway, the larynx starting to swell shut, right? That's that high-pitched inspiratory sound. It's strider. That means it's partially occluded because of the swelling. And I gave you another name for strider. Does anybody remember? Got a bird that's named after a bird. Huh? Nope, not tweety. <laughs> I don't know. That is a bird. Nobody remembers crowing. Uh,
1: He's thinking what? The longest, shore. longest yard. He got
0: knocked out. He got a bird. His name is Ronnie. Okay. Yeah, that's the only thing I was thinking about. That's exactly what I was thinking about. Hey. All right. All right. So now I think we've already covered the sounds of the lower airway, too, though, right? But let me, let me ask you rails and ronchi. What, what are rails and, and what's the difference between rails and ronchi? crackling that's a little fluid right in the lower airways so what's Ronchi that's a lot of fluid Ronchi is the one that you don't even need a stethoscope to really hear when you walk into the room they start coughing or something and you just you just hear that old stuff moving around in their chest that's a lot more fluid air enters the upper airway primarily through the nares of the nose moves through the trachea to the lower airway and travels through the trachea to each lung. From the lung, it enters the bronchus, bronchioles, and then finally the alveoli. So you take a breath in, and you and how does that breath even enter your lungs? How, how, what has to happen? The pressure, the pressure. pressure gradients. How do we make them? Pressure gradients. Okay, and then that does what to the chest wall? Makes it bigger. Okay, so pressures drop, right? So we're not talking about a liquid or a fluid, but it's still kind of like hydraulics, right? So, all right. Well, how, do you, how does your diaphragm and intercostal muscles know to contract? Chemoreceptors, Chemo-receptors do? That's where they're at. That's right. But what do they do? They send signals to the brain stem, the brain stem because the brain stem controls your respirations, right? right. Okay, well, good deal. Where the area where the trachea bifurcates? What's that called? All right. No, 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 no. Hold up. <laughs> somebody give me a letter H. H, A yes. B huh B. V B B okay no C Karate no um,
1: Karana
0: uh, yeah Karana <laughs> <laughs> <There you go. laughs> what he said <laughs> uh huh the Karina All right. So, the trachea bifurcates at the carina. Alright, here's my next question. So, after the trachea bifurcates at the carina into the left and right main stem bronchi, they continue to bifurcate. And each time they split in two, they get a little bit smaller, right? How many times does the bronchi bifurcate before they turn into bronchioles? Fifteenth generations of bifurcations, they turn into bronchioles. That is correct. And when we take that, all these things that y'all just explained to me, happens and we expand our chest and we take a breath in. How, of Roughly how much air do we pull in? 500 cc's or milliliters, right? Now, is all of that usable? No. 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 350 cc's because that's, that's how much reaches the alveoli, right? The rest of it we call dead space. Dead space. That's right. We're good. Man, y'all are smart. (laughs) All right. Respirations. Again, we talked about some... Again, this is review, but we talked about respirations, internal and external. And we talked about ventilations. What's the difference? What is a ventilation? What makes a ventilation different than respirations? No, sir. It is the physical act of expanding and relaxing the chest while bringing the air in and out. Respirations is when we utilize that 21% oxygen that's in that breath we just pulled in, right? Where does external respiration occur and where do internal respirations occur? External is. One of them's the lungs, one of them's. The cells of the body. Which one's external? Can't go to Vegas with y'all. You had a 50-50 shot. So through process of elimination, external respiration takes place in the lungs. Internal respiration is when once that diffusion takes place in the lungs and that oxygenated blood travels through the rest of the body and all the individual cells pick up the oxygen. That's internal. So, ventilation is the physical act of moving the air in and out. External respirations is diffusion. R, I guess, R, where it's where oxygen diffuses for carbon dioxide in the lungs. And internal is everywhere else. And I'm going to just let that go right there before I butcher it anymore. All right. Ventilation is the process of moving air into and out of the lungs. Oxygen is provided to the blood, and carbon dioxide is removed from it. And Where does the carbon dioxide come from in the first place? Uh, aerobic, metabolism. aerobic metabolism in all the other cells when internal respirations occur, right? Because all cells have to have oxygen and sugar to produce energy, right? Byproduct of that, which is aerobic metabolism, is carbon dioxide. And as oxygen is going out to the body, carbon dioxide's leaving the body. They pass each other in the road. Is there anybody that doesn't understand that? Okay. Why do we breathe? What makes us breathe? A buildup of carbon dioxide. That's right. And here's all that stuff that we already know. Somebody tell me about the Harry Brewer reflex. Why? So you don't you don't damage your lungs, right? It's in them stretch receptors in the lungs. Okay. For the body to receive the required nutrients and oxygen and dispose of the waste products like carbon dioxide, adequate ventilation, diffusion, and perfusion must occur. It all goes back to that principle we we talked about with the chain, right? The Fick principle. All these things have to occur, and it doesn't matter which link in that chain gets broken It's broken, and the patient will complain of? And you're going to walk in with your oxygen cylinder, right? There you go. Multiple complications can interfere with an ample intake of oxygen. And I'm not going to belabor the point anymore. That's the Fick principle all day long. It's all those things we've talked about in the past. It doesn't matter what the problem is. There's a problem, and oxygen's not getting where it needs to go. You could have upper airway obstruction, lower airway obstructions, chest wall impairments, neurologic control problems, all of these things. Let's see. An upper airway obstruction, what could that be? Just somebody give me an example. It could be food, okay? It could be your tongue. It could be as simple as you passed out from something completely unrelated to respiratory Turns out sometimes people get a really hot shower. Sometimes they'll pass out. It happens. And they fall down in the shower and crank their neck up in the corner of the shower. Can't breathe. They can, they can literally kill them. In an otherwise healthy person. So you show up, you need to do what? Open an airway. I'm telling you, I have seen it personally five or six times. At least, I'm sure. First time, I'll never forget, it was in Shenandoah Apartments. Walking to the house, they said, Oh, he's not breathing. Y'all come running. So we came running, right? Walking to the bedroom. Sure enough, buddy's laying on the, on the bed, head on a pillow, and his head and neck's purple. Now, for some reason, there was a lady straddle him with a spoon, sticking a spoon in his mouth. Didn't want him to swallow his tongue. Hey, y'all, you ain't going to swallow your tongue, all right? (laughs) But once I removed her in the spoon, (laughs) and don't misunderstand my my next statement, because this makes me nothing special, and that's not the point. The point is, without an airway, what's going to happen to you? Every time. I literally pulled the pillow out from underneath his head. His head fell back, and he went, (gasps) and the purple went away. Saved his life. He yeah, hero. So, any of these things, it doesn't matter what is preventing the oxygen from getting there, it's not getting there. All right. Those are those uh, respiratory conditions that I told you that we'll be talking about. And if you can identify these signs and symptoms, the registry will not be able to ask you something that you can't answer. All right. All right, carbon dioxide retention and hypoxic drive. Can anybody think of something that, now when we say carbon dioxide retention now, we just said we talk about the whole respiratory process to where, you know, all them signals are sent, the chest wall expands, we pull in oxygen into the alveoli, it crosses over that one cell thick membrane into the capillary beds and then the carbon dioxide comes from the capillary beds into the alveoli and we exhale the carbon dioxide now what can cause us to retain that carbon dioxide okay but literally what why are they retaining it yeah they, they, they can't get through that membrane yeah the sacs have fluid around them called surfactant yeah. and what happens sometimes Primarily, if, if you ever want to quit smoking, it'll never be easier than it will be today. Cigarette smoke is the number one cause of, dry, of that surfactant drying up. Okay? So, surfactant, that, that, that prevents your alveoli from collapsing, right? So, you don't have any surfactant. So, when you exhale, the alveoli collapses. And it retains or traps a little bit of that carbon dioxide. Okay? So... All of us breathe, bless you, because of a buildup of carbon dioxide. These folks always have a buildup of carbon dioxide because they are uh, they're retaining the carbon dioxide, so they always have too much. So why do they breathe? A lack of oxygen. That's called the hypoxic drive, okay? And it says that giving too much oxygen to these patients may actually stop their respirations. But never listen. There's very few always and nevers in this world, and there's very few always and nevers in EMS. But never withhold oxygen from a patient who needs it. Now, that's why primarily when you when you put up your patient on that non rebreathing mask, when the paramedic shows up. The first thing they're going to do is take your mask off, right, and put them on nasal cannula. And this is really a large reason why they do that. Because they do not want to uh, interfere with that hypoxic drive. If the, uh, uh, you know, we are talking about emphysema primarily. Talking about the emphysema patient, you're giving them too much oxygen because they need it and they stop breathing. Well, then what do you do? You breathe for them, right? Because you're never going to withhold oxygen. Dyspnea is shortness of breath or difficulty. Oh, excuse me. Difficulty in breathing. Whole bunch of reasons why they might be feeling this sensation. But your response to it is the same. Uh, Medical conditions that result in difficulty of breathing or hypoxia. Medical prefix, H-Y-P-O, hypo means what? Low Low or insufficient, right? Whenever you see O-X, what are we talking about? Oxygen. Oxygen. And then the I-A, that medical suffix, Condition condition of. That's correct. So hypoxia is a condition of low or insufficient oxygen. Might be talking about acute pulmonary edema. Whenever you see that word "acute," what does that mean to you? It don't mean it's pretty small. Well, it like a specific place, not small. Well, it's a sudden onset. It's not a chronic condition. It's like opposite of chronic. Chronic is something long term, like emphysema. That's a long term or chronic condition that these people deal with, right? But they may have. Something happened to them that uh, exacerbates their chronic condition, and now it is acutely bad. In other words, it's worse right now than it normally is because of this other reason. Does that make sense? So, one of the things would be acute pulmonary edema. Pulmonary edema is fluid in the lungs, right? We're jacking up those external respirations because those alveolar sacs are filled with fluid and mucus. Diffusion can't really take place that well. Okay? So you could have acute pulmonary edema, which, in, like I said, in English means there's fluid in the lungs all of a sudden. All right? They don't normally have it, but they have it right now. Sometimes called flash edema. If you think about it like that, that might put it in your mindset that this is a sudden onset of something. If something happens in a flash, it's kind of quick, right? Could be an obstruction of an airway. Could be a hot dog. Could be whatever. Something's obstructing that airway. Yeah, I've told you all about the the little lifesaver candies, right? That's why they got holes in the middle. Because they're lifesavers. You won't choke to death on them. Huh? You didn't know that, did you? You don't believe me, do you? Yes, sir. Some people, I, will, I don't know if it's true, I was told that they slit, go make a slit down the side of a hot dog so if people choke on them, it's easier to go down. I don't know if that's true. I'm sure it is true. I'm sure that's some why people I was do. That's always told, especially by the lunch ladies at
1: school. Lunch ladies at school? They
0: put a slit down it. Hunter, they were worried about you choking, wasn't they? <laughs> Come on. So there's that Waldrop boy. You know we got hot dogs today. <laughs> yes, that's why they cut hot dogs, yes. Alright, so listen. Acute pulmonary edema, obstruction of an airway, asthma or allergic reactions. Now, what's the problem with asthma or allergic reactions when you're talking about difficulty in breathing? Simple as that. Uh, COPD, which stands for chronic. Oh, so it's not acute, right? It's chronic. It's long term. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Rib fractures. That's that in, intentionally messing up your own tidal volume because it hurts so bad to breathe. And use of central nervous system, central nervous system depressant drugs. And what's the soup of the month? Did everybody, you, you see them pass out in the cars all the time? Narcotics, right? Narcotics. Yeah, soup of the year. Soup of the whatever. It, no. See, I could say soup of the day, though. Soup du jour. It's the drug du jour, I guess. Right, and so think about it like from our, our previous conversation with about the medication. So if a central nervous system depressant is nar- a narcotic. So you need a narcotic antagonist, right? You need to give them one of the uh, narcotic antagonists called Narcan. Right, as you treat patients with disorders of the lung, be aware that one or more of these situations most likely exists. There's that atelectasis. What did we say that was? We didn't call it by name a second ago, but Perry explained it to us. When that surfactant goes away and the alveoli collapse, atelectasis is the collapse of the alveoli. That's the medical term for that. You will see that numerous times. (coughs) Atelectasis if you have a stethoscope and you're listening to somebody's breathing, because I know you've been practicing doing that, if you hear these little clicks or pops when they breathe or when they exhale specifically, that's the alveoli collapsing. Atelectasis. Damaged alveoli. Air passages are obstructed. That's uh, the bronchial spasms associated with Asthma. Blood flow to the lungs might be obstructed. That could be a pulmonary embolus. Plural space is filled with air or excess fluid. Where's the pleural space again? That potential space that we've talked about? You see outside. Somebody said... It's in visceral and parietal parietal. There you go. That's what you're trying to say, wasn't it, Perry? You just don't like showing out, do you? Yeah. All right. And that is attention pneumothorax. So, who remembers? What type of shock will attention pneumothorax cause? Obstructive Obstructive shock. What's the other condition that causes obstructive shock? Pericardial tamponade or cardiac tamponade. That's right. And if you don't know that, I guarantee you there's a question you're going to miss on your test. All right. Besides shortness of breath, a patient with dyspnea may also report air hunger, chest tightness. And the people with air hunger, it's really all the same thing. But you'll see them just gasping for the air like they can't get enough. That's air hunger. Nasal flaring, you'll see those retractions. Dyspnea is also a common complaint in patients with cardiopulmonary disease for obvious reasons. However, severe pain can cause a patient to experience rapid, shallow breathing without pulmonary dysfunction. A panic attack can cause somebody to do that, right? Uh, severe pain, panic, whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, if there's, there's something other than some... Uh, you know, rib fracture or some pulmonary dysfunction or something, if someone's breathing shallow and deep because of a panic attack or whatever, if you can't get them to slow their breathing down, it's going to hit its own reset button soon enough, right? Because they're going to pass out, and as soon as they pass out, that medulla kicks back in, takes control of that breathing, and starts sending that signal about 12 to 20 times a minute. And it'll be all right. Just don't let them hit the head when they fall, because then you got a trauma patient. Yeah. Again, you know the problem with a lot of these these uh, disease processes that affect the lungs. And the respiratory system that, that's the problem it, for one way or another it interferes with that diffusion taking place so there's multiple different ways it can do it but it, if you get down to the brass tacks that's what you're looking at it interferes with that diffusion that takes place acute pulmonary edema we said acute means what? A sudden onset right? And what is pulmonary edema? Fluid in the lungs. And why is that a problem? It prevents that diffusion, right? Oxygen and carbon dioxide can't travel through that that wall, that membrane wall with all that fluid in there. Results in severe dyspnea. Interferes with the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. So, I'm not going to get too deep into this. But you do need to be just familiar with the concept. So if someone has congestive heart failure, and that's what we're talking about with a lot of these patients, is that congestive heart failure post-myocardial infarction, right? They had a heart attack. Enough tissue died to where now the, the inotropic properties of the heart are weakened, right? It's not squeezing like it should because you have enough enough death in that ventricle to where it can't, right? So, fluid tends to back up is the point. But if you have an alveolar sac, oxygen comes in, but, hey, you know what? Hold up. But it can't do anything because it's full of water. What's the answer to fixing that? I want you to think about, like, those little packets of balloons, the little round balloons or whatever. And if you took that balloon and blew it up just a little bit and put water in that balloon, how could you... Well, just put it... To, let's just say this. What you need to do is inflate the balloon. Because when you have it like this and it's full of water... The diffusion can't take place, right? Do what? What it, what you do is you inflate the balloon a little bit more, and now you have enough surface area, right here, 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 and here, for for uh, carbon dioxide to come in and oxygen to go out. Now you've got that surface area because you've inflated the balloon. And you don't have to worry about it too much right now. We'll talk about it more in the advanced section, but we're talking about CPAP. Continuous positive airway pressure. Okay? That's what congestive heart failure patients need when they've got that flash edema. Because if they don't get a CPAP, they're going to they're wind up eating a tube they're going to get intubated and ventilated because they're eventually going to get so exhausted and tired of trying to expand that chest wall enough to create gradients to get that oxygen. Because that's all the body knows to do, right? The fluid's there. It can't do nothing about it just now. But all it needs to, knows to do is, well, let's make a little bit more of a gradient so we'll get more air in because we need more. Okay? So they're going to become so exhausted that they're going to go out and get intubated. Acute pulmonary edema or a flash edema uh, may develop quickly, especially following a major cardiovascular insult, an MI. They've had a heart attack. It's not working right. Toxins, trauma, exposure to high altitudes, all those things could cause the same thing. Acute pulmonary edema still. Uh, of course, cardiogenic patients may present with signs of a cardiac emergency. What's the number one sign of a cardiac emergency? Chest pain. chest pain. That's the number one sign. Non-cardiogenic patients may present with a hypoxic episode, shock from the respiratory insufficiency side that we talked about, chest trauma, Toxic gases, high altitudes. But any and everybody with acute pulmonary edema, you are going to have difficulty breathing, right? What's orthopenia? That's a new word, I think. Now, whenever we see the P-E-N-A, we know we're talking about breathing, right? Because if it's D-Y-S, it's difficulty breathing. Bad or difficult. If it's an A, no breathing, right? If it's an EU, that's what you want, right? Eupnea, good, good good, and easy breathing. Orthopnea is difficulty in breathing while lying flat. And you need to know that word. Difficulty in breathing while lying flat. And you can always use that as a a really true indicator of just how bad their difficulty in breathing is. Because if they're having a little bit of problems, they're still not going to want to lie flat on their back. But if they pretty much try to claw your eyes out, if you try to make them lay flat on their back, you know it's it, they're really struggling. But you'll, you'll understand that before then anyhow because I told you sick folks look sick. All right, so difficulty breathing, orthopenia, fatigue... Why are they tired? Not get enough oxygen oxygen, so they're not producing enough energy and they're working extra hard to breathe too. Reduce exercise capacity, pulmonary rails, all those things would be common. All right. All right. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um... And this is where I kind of separate. This is a place where I kind of separate from the book just a little bit. Your book tells you that COPD is a disease in and of itself, right? Yeah. And they really kind of group. I want you think about COPD. That's like an umbrella term. That's a term that really encompasses multiple disease processes, okay? Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, you're talking about uh, chronic bronchitis. You're talking about emphysema. Some people consider asthma a COPD. And in certain parts of the country where you have coal mines, black lung is a COPD disease as well. Okay, but as far as you, what you need to know, one, to be a good EMT, and two, to take this test, is when you hear COPD, you're primarily talking about one of two conditions, okay? You got your pink puffers and your blue bloaters, and that sounds like something I'm making up when giving ugly nicknames to people, but it ain't me. Pink puffers are your emphysema patients, blue bloaters, that's your chronic bronchitis patients. And the slides, when we go through them here in a minute, you'll see that they kind of group the signs and symptoms of all COPD COPD patients kind of in the same or put them in the same basket. But there's a distinct difference between emphysema and chronic bronchitis. Okay? To begin with, emphysema patients are called pink puffers. Now, and again, that ain't just, I guess, to be ugly. There's, There's a reason for that. Emphysema patients, we've already said that because of their loss of surfactant, atelectasis occurs, right? The alveoli collapse and retains carbon dioxide, right? So they're having this this chronic or everyday life that involves difficulty in breathing. So what the body does is starts to produce extra red blood cells because that's where your hemoglobin's at, right? That's what transports your oxygen through your vessels in your blood, right? So this this additional amounts, if you will, of the red blood cells gives them, according to the book, a pinkish or reddish hue to their skin. So there's the pink part of the pink puffers. How do emphysema patients breathe? When they exhale, do you ever see them go... breathing through them pursed lips. That's why they're called pink puffers because they breathe through the pursed lips and the extra red blood, red blood cells gives them that pink issue. Okay? Why do they breathe like that? Something to do with the pressure makes it feel better. That's right. They don't understand why they're doing it but that maintaining that back pressure when they exhale prevents the alveoli from collapsing as much or as fast. They keep Basically, the picture I had drawn on here a minute ago, the CPAP, it's them giving themselves their own CPAP, kind of. It keeps that continuous airway pressure and kind of prevents or delays the alveoli from collapsing. And when you see it, you'll understand it. You'll say, oh, purse lips. You, you do that yourself. You kind of feel the pressure stay on your airway as you exhale. Okay? So emphysema patients or pink puffers they breathe through pursed lips someone with emphysema literally couldn't walk from here to that door without becoming extremely winded and exhausted that's called exertional dyspnea exertional dyspnea They can't exercise at all without, without having to stop. Of course, now these folks have the home oxygen, right? So that helps them. But if they exert themselves really at all, they, they can't, can't, can't even catch their breath. So, pink puffers breathe through pursed lips. They have exertional dyspnea. barrel shaped chest why are their chest why does their chest become misshapen do I because they're breathing so much much is kind of the correct answer but they're having difficulty in breathing so like I told you a little while ago the body really only knows one way to counteract that air hunger that's, they got to expand their chest wall a little bit more to create more of a pressure gradient to pull in more air with 21% oxygen, right? And this is a chronic condition. Now, if you take your right arm and you curl 50-pound weights with your right arm every day, but you take just a 10-pound weight and you curl with your left arm every day, in about six months, is there going to be a size difference? Or will that right bicep be misshapen or shaped differently than the left what's intercostal muscles your diaphragm the muscle right the harder it works it's going to so basically the muscles change in the chest wall because of The body's trying extra hard using those accessory muscles too, right? Because we just use intercostal and diaphragm. Someone that has difficulty breathing every day, they're using that sternocleidomastoid, the scalings, the peristernals, They're using all of those muscles, and they're working it harder than we do, so it literally changes the shape of their chest. Does that make sense? All right. Clubbed fingertips. Now, I want somebody to look in the book and explain that clubbed fingertip. And I told you all these conditions, there's usually one or two little things that's going to help you differentiate it from other conditions. An emphysema patient will have a dry, nonproductive cough. A dry, nonproductive cough. with one caveat, if, if their disease process is about to come to an end, and there's only one way you get rid of emphysema, is you pass away. Right as an emphysema patient is about to pass away when the end of their life is getting near, then they kind of develop congestive heart failure as well, and then they'll start having a wet, productive cough. So a little mental note, If you run a call on a patient that tells you they have emphysema and they have a wet cough, just know they're in the end stage. They're they're not going to last too much longer. Okay? It's pretty sad, ain't it? All right. Dry and unproductive calls. So emphysema patients are pink puffers because of the extra red blood cell production and breathing through pursed lips. That's the pink puffer. They breathe through pursed lips, they have exertional dyspnea. they literally couldn't walk from here to the door without losing their breath. Daryl shaped chest, club fingertips, and a dry, nonproductive cough. Would the club fingertips be chronic hypoxia? That has something to do with it, yeah. But I don't know why. Alright, so the blue bloaters. That's chronic bronchitis. If you are diagnosed... Now, how many of y'all have ever had bronchitis? Okay, most of us in the room. I'm not telling you you had COPD, because you didn't. But if if you're diagnosed with bronchitis for two or more months... For two or more years in a row. If you're diagnosed with bronchitis for two or more months out of the year... And two or more years in a row, you're stamped chronic bronchitis because it's not acute now, right? It's a long-term thing. Oh, and what's the number one cause of both of these? Cigarette smoking. Number one cause. Cigarettes, cigars, probably vaping. My guess. I don't know called popcorn lung, that's what it's called, and it blows up in your pocket. Turns out vaping makes you lose a leg. You can breathe, maybe, but you lose a leg. All right. Chronic bronchitis, two or more months of the year, uh, two or more years in a row. Um. Excess mucus production. The goblet cells, just like it sounds, G O B L E T, the goblet cells in your airway produce excess amounts of mucus. And uh, the bronchioles will spasm means they'll constrict and relax, constrict and relax. So they they get smaller and there's excess mucus in there. Can you see? Would that be a problem? So the oxygen doesn't make it to the alveoli. You can't diffuse. So the blue is that they sometimes run a little cyanotic. They'll have a little bluish tint to them. And the bloaters, excess fluid. They're holding excess water, if you will. So they kind of... I'm not saying everybody who has chronic bronchitis is overweight. That's not what I'm telling you. What I'm telling you is they, they kind of hold fluid, retain fluid, and they'll have a little cyanosis about them. Blue bloaters. Pink puffers, blue bloaters. Uh, so what kind of cough do you think they have? So just with that alone... Can you see how chronic bronchitis and and, uh, emphysema patients have a total opposite or different set of signs and symptoms? When will an emphysema patient have wet coughs? They are in the end stages. All right, so with that in mind, pay attention to these next few slides and you'll see where we kind of break away from the slides a little bit. Cigarette smoking is the most common cause of COPD. Chronic bronchitis, emphysema, pneumonia. And obstruction occurs in the bronchioles. Now you see, that's true for chronic bronchitis, right? Because there's spasming and there's excess mucus in there. That's not necessarily true for emphysema though, right? Where's the problem with the emphysema patients? There's no surfactant, the alveoli atelectasis, they collapse and retains that carbon dioxide. Totally different. Patients with acute COPD may now what does that mean? Now, C what C and C O P D stand for? Chronic. How can you have acute chronic something? it's worse worse. Time. It's worse than it's normal. There you go. That is, that is an, an acute um, acerbation is the word of that. You've got a problem that's bad every day, but now it's worse for whatever reason. <clears throat> Alright. <clears throat> Who's going to breathe through pursed lips? Emphysema. Emphysema patients. That's that back pressure they're keeping. Have a barrel-shaped chest. What do you think he has? Black lung. <laughs> Black lung. Emphysema, right? Emphysema. Um, what's that position he's sitting in called? Uh-huh. What's them sunken in spaces above his collarbone? Retraction. Retraction. Supraclavicular retraction, specifically.
1: You, let me have them? you got it,
0: dog. <laughs> I'm just helping you pick up your game. That's all. All right. Shortness of breath, tightness of the chest, constant fatigue. That's that exertional dyspnea we were talking about. So they say COPD, but they're primarily talking about the emphysema patient with this slide here. Asthma. Acute spasms of the bronchioles. I'm telling you now. I'm telling you now. I'm telling you now. Registry gives you a scenario, and they say the patient is wheezing, you look for the answer that says what? Now, emphysema patients are going to wheeze. Some chronic bronchitis patients will wheeze a little bit, too. As far as registry is concerned, you hear wheeze, stop thinking. All right. Acute spasm of the bronchioles associated with excess mucus production and bronchular muscle spasm. That sounds familiar, don't it? That sounds like what? Uh, Chronic bronchitis. That's right. (laughs) And what produces the mucus? goblet Goblet cells. There you go. Listen. A serious or severe asthma attack is called status asthmaticus. That sounds like a Roman gladiator or something, don't it? Status asthmaticus. <laughs> Anytime you see uh, status on the front of something like asthmaticus, obviously, but also, um, doggone it, my mind just hit neutral. The seizures, prolonged seizures, status epilepticus. There you go, that's, that's the other Roman. Status asthmaticus, status epilepticus, it's worse. It's, it's, it's an extended attack. It, it's a, it is a truly, a true, a dire medical emergency. If someone has uh, had this prolonged asthma attack, all those bronchioles are, are spasming, right? They're getting smaller. Excess mucus is in there. They can't breathe, right? Eventually, without the right type of medication, These people are going to have what's called a silent chest. You'll put a stethoscope on their chest and you see them expanding their chest wall but you don't hear no air going in and out. You don't hear any more wheezing either. What does that tell you? It's shut down, right? Anybody know what they have to have to live? They have to have oxygen but if it's shut down, the oxygen ain't getting nowhere, right? What... What was those alpha and beta effects we were reading about earlier? Is it beta 2? Somebody, somebody. Is it beta 2? Beta 2 does what? Yeah, so they need some albuterol and some epi, right? All right, wheezing is heard when asthma patients exhale, expiratory wheezes. When they, The problem isn't breathing in with asthma patients, the problem is exhaling, okay? It says here, you can have inspiratory and expiratory wheezes. When they in, exhale is normal, right? You know, when the when the uh, asthma attack first starts, they might not have any problem at all inhaling. Right? It's when they exhale. But as it gets worse, you'll have both inspiratory and expiratory wheezes. And what causes it to when it I guess just begins? But it's almost when you exhale. It's just it's, it's because of that spasm in of the uh, of the uh, bronchioles. I mean, but as it gets worse, it, it affects everything. But just uh, asthma, by its nature, just affects their ability to exhale still. So, um, basically, you have two basic groups or two basic types of asthma. You've got intrinsic asthma and you've got extrinsic asthma. The name kind of implies the difference, right? Right. If someone is allergic to or has a reaction to certain pet danders or cut grass or whatever, if it's something outside the body that triggers their asthma attack, that's extrinsic asthma. Intrinsic asthma would be stuff from within. Some people, if they get stressed out really bad or or something upsets them, they'll start wheezing. That's intrinsic asthma. Okay? And people with asthma have one of those rescue inhalers with them all the time, right? And what's in it? Albuterol. You see them shake, 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 right? So, next class is Thursday. Thursday. Yes. Yes. Quiz on, um, we already had the albuterol. some of y'all need to do it for the first time yeah no I'm trying I'm kind of talking and kind of thinking at the same time and I'm not good at it but uh, I want y'all to you're going to have a quiz on albuterol again next class but I want you to focus on the meter dose inhaler specifically you don't have to be off that chart either you can look in the chapter or whatever I want you to focus on the meter dose inhaler, MDI, and we'll have another quiz on that. All right. Anaphylactic reactions. What are we talking about there? Anaphylaxis, anaphylactic reactions. It is a severe and exaggerated allergic reaction. It's not just your normal everyday garden variety, okay? Um, Severe. It swells the airway shut. What specifically is causing the anaphylaxis? Uh, It's called histamines and leukotrienes. Just a little, I guess, Cliff Notes version of anaphylaxis and, and, and the histamines and leukotrienes. Basically... You're walking around minding your own business, right? And it, But then this... Let's say you get stung by a, um, a wasp or whatever. And you had never been stung by a wasp before. Now, that antigen, that wasp venom, that antigen is now in your bloodstream and it's not normally there. So the body recognizes that and produces an antibody, which is released into the bloodstream, and it finds that specific antigen and adheres to it. So now you have what's called the antigen-antibody complex. You don't have to worry about that, but it forms a, what's called a mast cell, M-A-S-T. Now you've got these mast cells floating around in your blood that recognizes wasp venom okay, you are sensitized to that wasp venom now. So, you walk around minding your own business a month later, whenever, you get hit by another wasp. Normal occurrences here is these mast cells that are programmed for wasp venom recognize it, they release a little bit of uh, histamines, leukotrienes, there's really like six substances, but the two you need to understand are histamines and leukotrienes and they go in there and they basically attack that uh, that wasp venom and kind of takes care of the situation it's done for but when anaphylaxis occurs massive amounts of uh, histamines are released and, and then the leukotrienes and turns out histamines and leukotrienes in mass amounts what do you think they do to the bronchial tree? shut it down what do you think it does to all your vessels? Blows them up. So now, you don't have the ability to bring in oxygen, and you can't circulate what you got because pressure bottoms out. Anaphylactic shock. Now, what medication is there out there that opens the bronchial tree and causes the vessels to, die, to constrict? Epinephrine. Epinephrine. There you go. And if you look at all the alpha-1, beta-1, beta-2 properties, you'll see exactly what we're talking about. Same thing. Anaphylaxis will cause severe respiratory distress, coma, and death if they don't get the medicine they need. Widespread itching. They're going to wheeze a little bit, too. And it is definitely a true emergency. Uh, spontaneous pneumothorax. Now, we've talked briefly about a pneumothorax, and then it develops into a tension pneumothorax, which will cause what type of shock? Obstructive shock. This is a picture, basically, of the collapsed lungs. This is the tension pneumothorax. But this is spontaneous pneumothorax. What's a spontaneous pneumothorax? Yeah, these are people that... Usually people who develop uh, pneumothorax has had some sort of penetrating trauma to the anterior chest, damaged the lung, maybe the trachea gets damaged, air leaks into places that it shouldn't be builds up and eventually claps the lung. But a spontaneous pneumothorax that means there's not really does everybody have this? There's really no trauma involved there, right? Spontaneous pneumothorax is someone who's born With a congenital bleb on their lung. If something's congenital, that means what? They're kind of born with it, right? A bleb is just like a little blister. Like It's just a weak spot on the lung that they were born with. And then maybe one day they kind of cough or something happens or they sneeze and it pops that little blister and air leaks out. It gets into that potential space that we've already talked about several times. Builds and builds and builds and builds and builds until it turns into a tension pneumothorax. Okay? Who is... Does your book tell you who is more likely to develop a spontaneous pneumothorax? People with emphysema and asthma. People with emphysema and asthma. But there's another group Would weak care logs do what, Colby? It says, um, they could have certain chronic lung infections or in young people. Okay. Tall, slender, athletic males. Oh, and young. <laughs> young what's that what's that Ron White skit where he says you've ever eaten Cheetos sitting in a bean bag and the preacher on TV says are you eating Cheetos in a bean bag do you feel like sending me some money there for a minute I thought he was talking to me yeah tall Young, tall, slender, athletic males, those with emphysema and asthma, also patients that are on uh, ventilators. If there's a machine that's breathing for them, they may develop a, a pneumothorax or spontaneous pneumothorax as well. All right. Spontaneous pneumothorax may occur in patients with chronic lung infections who are young and were born with weak areas of the lungs, those are blebs, emphysema, asthma, tall, thin, healthy males are also at risk. If one of those blebs pop and and they develop that spontaneous pneumothorax, uh, they'll complain of pleuritic chest pain. And I, I think that's a new term for us, too. If someone has pleuritic chest pain, what specifically makes that different than just regular chest pain? It's on one side. Hmm. Maybe, but. Okay, but there's a reason why it's on that one side, though. Do what? Says a sharp stabbing chest pain on one side that is worse during breathing or with certain movements. There you go, and that's what you need to know about pleuritic chest pain. It's it's made worse when you breathe. They take a breath in; it's like a stabbing sensation. Pleuritic chest pain. Breath sounds may be absent or decreased on the affected side. Now let me. Now, let me tell you, now if you take a stethoscope and you just look at this picture, and you lay a stethoscope on this side of the chest wall, as they take that deep breath and exhale, you'll hear air coming in and out of that, right? But now, you put a stethoscope right here. <coughs> Depending on how far that the collapse has progressed or how far that lung has been smashed, you may hear diminished breath sounds, okay? You'll hear the breath sounds, but it's not as loud as the other side It's because it's starting to collapse. But once the lung is completely collapsed, you will have absent breath sounds, obviously, right? Because there's no air going in and out. But, but this is the term you need to know when it comes to tension pneumothorax. And the, the registry wants you to understand that there will be hyper-resonance upon percussion. Hyper-resonance upon percussion. That means if you take your fingers and you tap this side of the chest, it's going to sound normal, right? Then you tap this side, it sounds hollow. Hyper resonance. Hollow. Why does it sound hollow? Because it's hollow. Hyper resonance upon percussion. Absent breath sounds. Tension pneumothorax. (coughs) All right. And here, just look here. This says spontaneous pneumothorax, right? And then it says, trauma is the most common cause. That's just a regular pneumothorax. If it's spontaneous, it doesn't need trauma to happen, right? It's just spontaneous. Boy, I already said all that. Because I went backwards a minute ago, that's fine. Pleuritic chest pain, breast size may be absent or decreased on the affected side. Or if you tap it, you might have what? Hyperresonance. Patients experiencing minor problems may be pale, diaphoretic, or tachypneic. And again, just that body detecting the problem, releasing that epinephrine, jumping the blood away from the skin, increasing the heart rate. What type of shock would you not see that? There's one type of shock. Yeah, I said the symptoms were different. That's right, or spinal shock, right? Because the nerves that innervate, the adrenal glands aren't working because of that injury. Look at that. Hyperresonance percussion, see? With a spontaneous pneumothorax, again, they're eventually going to become altered. They'll be cyanotic, tachycardic. Unilaterally decreased or absent breath sounds, depending on how far they've progressed, that, that hyperresonance, Subcutaneous emphysema. That is, if, especially a lot of times if the trachea is damaged, air will leak out, get underneath the skin. So when you palpate their upper chest, it'll crackle under your fingertips because like, there's air bubbles under the skin. That's called subcutaneous emphysema. Need to know that, and as well, y'all get another treat, I'm gonna draw something for you. All right, tracheal deviation. It says there may be a late sign with a tension pneumothorax. Now, whether it's spontaneous or whether it uh, comes from a gunshot wound or whatever, as that air leaks out into that potential space between the visceral and the parietal pleura, and it builds and builds and builds and builds, and then eventually it collapses the lung, right? Tracheal deviation later on in this process may or may not develop. But what it does is basically if this lung gets collapsed to the point to where it is right here and all this is pressure, eventually once that space fills up it's going to expand even further and this whole right side will start pushing on the left side. Okay? Because that feeds into that obstructive shock, right? As this pushing over, that's when that Inferior vena cava is eventually going to get crimped, messing up the preload, obstructive shock. But as it's pushing on over here, here's your neck and the trachea right up the middle of your neck. As this pushes that way, the trachea will deviate or move to one side of the neck. And the trachea will always deviate to the affected side. If the right side is collapsed, as it pushes, imagine, if you will, like there's a, although it's hinged right there or something. As that pushes that way, the trachea is going to go to the affected side. Does that make sense? Tracheal deviation. And it's the weirdest thing ever if you ever see it. So... Uh, Needle chest decompression. Paramedics got to take a 14-gauge, 2-inch needle and go to that between the second and third intercostal space, poke that needle in the chest, and it'll be like a bicycle tire. Air will shoot out of the little needle, and you can literally watch that trachea come back to center. It's freaky. It is. All right plural effusion is kind of the same thing except for now let me back up because with the pneumothorax you have pneumothorax what if I change that a little bit and said a hemothorax blood. then you have blood in the plural space what if we said hemo pneumothorax blood, blood and air so with that needle chest decompression if it's a pneumothorax you pop the needle in you hear air come out right if it's a hemothorax you poke the needle in, blood comes out. So what if it's a hemoneumo Bloody bubbles. You bloody bubbles. Plural effusion It's just fluid. okay. Usually you're looking at somebody who's a cancer patient undergoing cancer treatments would we'll develop the uh, plural effusion. Yeah, You should always consider a pleural effusion if you run a call to a cancer patient uh, complaining of difficulty in breathing, shortness of breath. Always keep in mind that's probably uh, uh, what it is, and and we're not going to do much about that in the field. They have to go to the doctor to get that fluid out of their lungs. All right. Y'all stretch yourself before we talk about pulmonary embolisms. With a with pulmonary embolism, the clot doesn't form, bless you, in the, in the place where it's creating the problem. A lot of times the, the, the clots are formed in the lower extremities. Um, how many of y'all ever been in a hospital for an extended period of time or had a loved one who was, and they put them stockings on their legs? And they inflate and deflate. They're squeezing their legs. What do you think they're doing? Keeping the, Keep the blood moving so it doesn't form clots, right? A lot of truck drivers get those too. If you want to drive, them. they can. They get those in varicose veins. Yeah, because their legs are in a stationary position quite frequently. Huh? And cankles. And cankles, yeah. <laughs> so. The clot forms, usually, like I said, in the lower extremities, breaks free for whatever reason. And, all right, let's see who can remember. Let's, let's trace that drop of blood a little bit. It comes back into the heart, through the inferior and superior vena cava, right? Enters into the right atrium, passes through tricuspid valve into the right ventricle. After it leaves the right ventricle, it goes through the pulmonic semilunar valves into the pulmonary artery. arteries, right? That's where the clot gets hung up, and that's when the problem of a PE occurs, okay? It gets hung up, and right there, as it's passing through that uh, pulmonary valve or pulmonic semilunar valve, and occludes or partially occludes the pulmonary artery, okay? Now, how bad the signs and symptoms turn out to be is directly uh, related to the size of the thrombus, the size of the clot. They can show signs and symptoms of shock right off the bat if enough blood flow is restricted. They're breathing in and out, but they're not getting that oxygen in the blood, so they're not getting oxygenated blood where it needs to be, so, what's going to be one of the primary signs and symptoms? Well, there there will be pleuritic chest pain. Okay. But here's the, really the... The telltale sign or the little red flag sign, if you will, that we've talked about, about the little red flags. But sudden, unexplained onset of chest pain and difficulty in breathing. No problems. Nothing's going on. They don't have any respiratory condition. Maybe they've recently had a surgery. Let me go ahead and write that one down. Recent surgery or, um, or some traumatic event like they broke a, broke a femur, broke a bone somewhere in their body, um, sudden onset of unexplained chest pain and difficulty in breathing. Maybe, maybe they haven't had any surgeries or trauma, but maybe they're bedridden. And here's a new word. Hemoptysis. Coughing up blood. Recent surgery or trauma, like a broken bone or something, or maybe they're bedridden, And all of a sudden, sudden onset of unexplained chest pain, difficulty breathing, hemoptysis, PE, pulmonary embolus. And like I said, you may even have signs and symptoms of shock, depending on the size of the clot. And what are the signs and symptoms of shock? Pale, cool, diaphoretic skin. Tachycardia. Tachypnea. They're breathing fast. Heart's beating fast. Skin's pale, cool, diaphoretic. And then blood pressure drops. That's a late sign, but yes. That's when you know they're going from compensated to decompensated. All right. All right, here's a, a term I guess you need to know. Right here it says, no gas exchange occurs in areas of blood flow even though inhalation and exhalation are occurring. They're still not oxygenating like they should and that's called ventilation, perfusion, mismatch. They're rising and falling in that chest. They're pulling that air in and out, but because of that clot in the pulmonary artery, they're not able to perfuse properly. Well, that's a problem. Uh, may recur as a result of damage to lining the vessels. Hypercoagulability. That's a five-dollar word for what? Hypercoagulability. They clot really easily, right? Yeah. result in death, and 5% are immediately fatal. Pulmonary embolism, the risk factors, immobilized legs, recent surgery, pregnancy, oral contraceptives. Probably the people who have to worry about blood clots in their legs more than anybody else is... Ladies over 30 who take oral contraceptives and smoke. Infections, cancer, sickle cell, prolonged inactivity, bedridden. All these things kind of predispose you or make it, I guess, more likely. And listen, once that clot, like especially if it breaks free below the, the, the knee, a lot of times it'll get hung up on the backside of the knee or the calf. And the calf or the back of their knee may turn red. It'll actually have a little bit of a fever in it and kind of swell up. If your calf or back of your knee starts hurting and turns red, you might want to go to the doctor. Because that's a clot that's got hung up right there in that knee. Okay? Or the calf. Signs and symptoms acute or sudden onset of unexplained difficulty in breathing. Pleuritic chest pain, hemoptysis, cyanosis—if that clot's big enough, right? Tachypnea and varying degrees of hypoxia. Me it's bluish, the blue color, That's right. because of lack of oxygen. Hyperventilation. Hyperventilation is over-breathing to a point that arterial carbon dioxide falls below normal. Yep. We've all seen at least one person in our life hyperventilate, right? Just breathing really, really fast, really deep, really fast, really deep. And if, you, if they don't control their breathing, what's what's eventually going to start happening? Their face, they might say their face is getting tingly, all right? And then the oh, hands may even forearms might cramp up to the point where their hands kind of pull up like that. That's because it blew off too much of that carbon dioxide. Starts cramping up. Hands kind of turn in, and eventually if they don't control their breathing, they're going to pass out, and once they pass out, hits that old reset button. Breathing returns to normal rate and depth. Hyperventilation may be an indicator of life-threatening illnesses or it might be panic. It just, you have to, you know, investigate each type, each uh, scene. Maybe the body's attempt to compensate for acidosis. Don't don't even worry about that just yet. Tachypnea without uh, psychological, uh, physiologic, Demand for increased oxygen. Don't don't even worry about that either. Don't worry about that. We're not worried about acidosis or alkalosis. Obstructing an airway. Obviously, it could be a mechanical obstruction, uh, foreign object. It might be that malpositioning of the head. It might be that scenario I gave you earlier where they. Passed out and fell down, but wherever they landed, maybe uh, occluding in their own airway. Toxic substances. Definitely uh, pesticides, cleaning solutions, chemicals, chlorine, carbon monoxide, What are two household products, cleaning products, that don't mix? Basically, Windex and bleach. do I? Windex and bleach. Why Windex, though? Because what's in there? The, um, ammonia. ammonia. Ammonia and bleach. If you mix them two together, you have created what they call mustard gas. Don't do it. Yeah. Now... How many of y'all got cats in your house? Litter boxes. What's in that litter box? <laughs> a whole lot of ammonia. Ammonia. You ever clean around it with bleach? What? Yeah, don't do that. Not Hi? Not yeah, well. I've with, with Fabuloso. Fabuloso. Okay. I've with a girl who makes and scrubbing bubbles. she has really bad asthma too and yeah she was in the hospital for like three days yeah. yeah. alright somebody asked me about cystic fibrosis earlier he's gone. Oh, he's gone look at there CF cystic fibrosis as a genetic disorder of the endocrine system you would think it would be a respiratory or pulmonary disease right But cystic fibrosis is actually a genetic disorder of the endocrine system. But it does primarily target the respiratory and digestive systems. Causes excess excretions in the lungs. Too much fluid in the lungs. Respiratory insufficiency, signs of respiratory infection, and intestinal blockages all kind of go with cystic fibrosis. Oh, the, if you get called to a patient with CF, what's going to their complaint going to be? And what do you do for that? Give them oxygen. You're not going to fix that chronic condition. You're going to treat the signs and symptoms. All right. Age-related conditions. Um, and most of these... Most of these apply to children, pediatric patients, but that doesn't mean that as an adult, you can't get it as well. Okay? But bronchiolitis, the name alone tells you what the problem is, right? Yes. ITIS means what? The bronchioles are swollen or spasming. Okay? It's a virus, a viral infection. Primarily affects children uh, under two years of age. Real similar to asthma. RSV. Anybody ever heard of that? Young children. Again, you're... And and let me go ahead and caution you. You know, we're talking about giving oxygen. I've told you that, you, boy, you put it on non-rebreather mask and let the paramedic do the nasal cannula or whatever. But an infant, if you have a very small... um, Infant in particular, especially for a neonate, the first month of life, and you give them too much oxygen, it can actually cause them to go blind. It's called oxygen toxicity. And it, it, so, for like, especially a neonate, the first month of life, if you get called out to one of those, it's just the old blow by oxygen. You take that non breathing mask and hold it to the side of the baby's face and let the oxygen literally blow by. Their, their mouth and nose, and they, as they breathe it, there'll be more than 21% oxygen in there. But uh, don't give an infant super-concentrated amounts of oxygen, and that's why. Croup, all right, now, if registry's going to ask you about an age-related respiratory problem, they're going to want you to be able to differentiate between croup and epiglottitis. Okay, croup is due to inflammation and swelling of the pharynx, larynx, and the trachea, often secondary to an acute viral infection. So, croup is a virus. typically seen in ages six months to three years. Croup usually shows itself during the winter months of the year. How many of y'all... Y'all don't think I'm making this up, but how many of y'all ever heard if you had a baby uh, with this seal-like barking cough what'd your grandmama tell you to do with that baby that had that barking-like cough? y'all ain't heard this? No, I mean, that's your generation. it's what? That's your generation. Is it? no, it actually was generation before me <laughs> you never heard them tell them to stick their head in the refrigerator? Because the cool air, the cooler temperatures, makes that cough go away. As soon as you take the head out of the refrigerator, it comes back. (laughs) So that's why if you're not careful, you might think, like, you show up to a house, you hear that seal-like barking cough, you take the baby, you go to get in the ambulance, go to the hospital, you get out in the yard, and say it's 40 degrees out in the yard, the cough gets better. But as soon as you go back inside and it's warmer, it's going to come back. Okay? So croup is a virus. Happens uh, six months to three years, somewhere in that neighborhood usually. Happens during the winter months of the year. It's a seal-like barking cough. And again, the cool air tends to make the cough better. But as soon as it warms back up, it comes back. Epiglottitis. Something swollen, ain't it? What is it? The epiglottis. Epiglottitis is a bacterial infection. And it is a serious inflammation of the epi- ep- epiglottis. And that's that little piece of cartilage that flops back and forth over the trachea and the esophagus, right? So if that's swollen and irritated and enlarged, how could that be a problem? Well, if it's larger than normal, it's kind of partial airway occlusion right off the bat, right? So, And here's the deal. A child that has epiglottitis you don't, you, you want to get to the hospital without wasting a bunch of time. And I'm not, by all means, your safety comes first. Don't drive stupid. Okay. I was, but if you run lights and sirens and if that child gets scared by them sirens, or if they get uh, amped up for any reason, that airway can swell shut just like that. You keep them calm. Because if they get nervous or scared or whatever, that could promote that swelling to take place that much faster. Okay? So epiglottitis is a swollen epiglottis. You don't get them scared or nervous. It's a bacterial infection, right? And the red flag thing, this, this, their throat hurts so bad that they won't swallow. Basically, what you'll see is they'll be running a fever. They're there and they'll be drooling out of their mouth because they will not swallow because it hurts too bad for them to swallow. Okay? And is it a virus or a bacteria? Bacteria. Bacteria. Epiglottitis is a serious inflammation of the epiglottis caused by a bacterial infection predominant in children but can happen to anybody. May obstruct the airway, especially if they get, you know, excited or whatever. Usually in the tripod position and drooling, sudden onset, very sore throat, high fever, strider. When they're taking that breath in, you hear that high-pitched sound because that's that partial airway, upper airway obstruction we were talking about, okay? And most definitely could be life-threatening. Pneumonia. I think uh, fairly common, I guess. What is pneumonia? It's fluid and, lung. It's fluid and lung. Yeah. Fifth leading cause of death in the United States. Because a lot of other things like cancer and things of that nature kind of promote Pneumonia presents as localized infections in the lungs. Can become systemic. Productive cough with purulent sputum, pleuritic chest pain. Again, they owe excessive mucus. Oh- All right, pertussis or whooping cough. Airborne bacterial infection. Why is it called whooping cough? We know there it is, right? Mostly affects kids younger than six years of age it is highly contagious. Uh, Cold-like symptoms, but dramatic coughing spells. Congestive heart failure. It follows heart attacks or other illnesses. Mainly, you're looking at heart attacks or anything that so weakens the heart that it can't pump effectively anymore. Um... And understand this. If someone is in the cause 9-1 and you show up and they tell you that they have chest pain. As far as you're concerned, until proven otherwise, what's wrong with them? Having a heart attack. And I ain't even being funny. What is a heart attack? What's the problem? What's happening? But what's causing it? A clot or a piece of plaque or something in the coronary arteries, right? It's preventing oxygenated blood to get from getting to all the heart tissue, right? So they have a demonstrated inability to circulate oxygenated blood where it needs to go, right? What causes them to have an even higher demand for oxygen? What are some things that you can allow them to do? or tell them to do that's going to make their heart require more oxygen? Walk. Right? walk. You ain't never seen that though, have you? Oh, your chest hurting? Come on, let's, let's go get an ambulance. Can you walk to the ambulance? That don't, that don't happen. It does happen. But what are we doing when we do that? We're, we're, we're throwing them straight into congestive heart failure. We won't know it on the scene, but if they got a piece of heart that can't get oxygen, right, under the normal conditions, but now you make them walk, what's happening to their heart rate while they're walking? Because the, those cells have to have oxygen to produce energy for them to walk, Right. They got a limited ability to get it there in the first place. So now you took what might have been a dime-sized piece of death and turned it into a quarter or a half dollar. You literally could throw them into congestive heart failure by allowing them to walk. Position of comfort. Oxygen. These people need chewable aspirin, right? If their blood pressure will allow it, they need, they need nitroglycerin. Because the, the aspirin does What? thins their blood so it can slow the formation of that clot or whatever and plus it can kind of get around it somewhat. The nitroglycerin makes the vessels bigger, right? So basically it's reducing the need for oxygen but provide more oxygen at the same time. If that makes sense. Do not let these people walk. If there's a paramedic or EMT or whatever else on the ambulance and you're on the fire truck or whatever you own, If they say, hey, come on, buddy, listen, you do the right thing, sir, have a seat. I'll go get the stretcher. If they don't want to, I'll go get it. That's called patient advocacy. Do not let people with chest pains walk. You literally could be killing them. All right? That's twice I was on a soapbox today. Congestive heart failure, following a heart attack or other illness, the heart is failing as a pump. It can't eject that 70 milliliters, right? Results in pulmonary edema. Fluid backs up. If it ain't circulating like it's supposed to, it's going to back up, right? And depending on where that death is, it's going to dictate where that fluid backs up to first. Hypertension. History of coronary artery disease. Atrial fibrillation. Difficulty breathing with exertion. Sudden attack of respiratory distress, coughing, feeling like they're suffocated, cold sweats, tachycardia, all these things go hand in hand with not being able to catch your breath. All right, wet lungs versus dry lungs. And you can probably say this is that necessarily correct? Dry lungs are associated with emphysema. Wet lungs are associated with chronic bronchitis. All right. Patient assessment, your your patient assessment is the same. For every patient you ever go on, right? It is a systematic approach to trying to figure out what the problem or problems is or are. Just like before I I walked back in with the oxygen cylinder a little while ago, some of y'all looked pretty anxious yourself, right? You can't breathe, you're going to be anxious. You're going to be scared. And fear does what to your respirations to begin with? Uh, respiratory distress patients may be some of the most ill and challenging patients you will encounter. I'm going to tell you, working a cardiac arrest, someone is already dead. That's that's never really bothered me a whole bunch as far as making me nervous or, or apprehensive myself. It's the ones that are about to die that always caught my attention and made me apprehensive and nervous and want to make sure I didn't do nothing wrong. Uh, and that's true. If someone can't catch their breath. They absolutely will be anxious and as soon as you get there, I mean it's some of y'all seen it already, so I ain't tell you nothing you don't already know, but that will that will play with you. So it's important to understand and really have your patient assessment skills down, right? It's got to be systematic. All those practice calls you go on, the ones in the back of your mind, you might even be thinking, yeah, I, they really didn't even need to call me. Those are the practice ones. Those are when you get your patient assessment skills so refined that when you walk through the door and you see this, you ain't got to think about what to do. It's just second nature. It's muscle memory for the brain, okay? scene size up is all the same. Your, your, your safety is primary <laughs> then with respiratory emergencies, how common do you think it is that, that you might never really get out of the primary assessment with some of these patients? If you can't fix and assess and fix the airway the breathing and the circulation, you're not going to check their left calf for nothing, right? You know what I'm saying? If the breathing's jacked up, you're going to work on that. and if it's bad enough, you'll work on that till you get them to the hospital. so you'll never get out of primary assessment. But it stays the same, ABCs, then you make a transport decision, right? Are they a priority patient or not? If they are, you're off the seeing how fast. <laughs> and listen to me, if they're having difficulty breathing, they are a priority patient. They are. Signs of life-threatening respiratory distress. Uh-oh. Altered mental status. If they're unconscious or, or not mentating properly, that means their difficulty in breathing has started to affect the brain. That's definitely potentially life-threatening. Severe cyanosis. Where is cyanosis the most severe? If you have it out in your hands and feet, or if you had it on your chest and abdomen. Yeah, that's, ca- that's called central cyanosis. This is acrocyanosis in the arms and legs. Central cyanosis definitely indicates the worst problem. Absent or abnormal breath sounds. Audible stridor. When they inhale, you hear that high-pitched sound, that inspiratory sound. That's uh, potentially life-threatening because that airway is in the process of swelling shut. One to two-word dyspnea. Coughing or uncontrolled coughing, I guess. Tachycardia, if their pulse rate's over 130 a minute, they're struggling, okay? Changes in respiratory rate or rhythm, parlor, diaphoresis, presence of retractions and or the use of accessory muscles, tripod position, all these things tell you that this is a priority patient. Form a general impression, The primary assessment, like we said. Lung sounds. If you hear wheezing, what's the problem? What are they going to complain of? Ask your OPQRST questions. Get your sample history. Um, Again, if you get a chance to get to your secondary assessment, you'll do that. Repeat every 5 or 15. Never withhold oxygen from a patient who needs it, even COPD patients. Because worst-case scenario, they stop breathing, and you do what? Breathe full. full. Anytime someone is altered or even unconscious, you know, you have to open the airway. If they're unconscious, can they protect their own airway? So whether it be a trauma or a medical patient, you do the head tilt, chin lift, jaw thrust maneuver, Insert an OPA. If they start to the gag, what do you do? MPA. Take it out. MPA. When would you not use an MPA? or skull fracture. Yeah. All right, here we go. Meter dose inhalers. MDI. Who has never seen one of these? Yeah, that's what I thought. All right. Uh, be aware of the contraindications for use of a meter dose inhaler what are the contraindications for use for a meter dose inhaler but would that prevent you from using it What would contraindicate it? Because if someone's having difficulty breathing, are they not going to have tachycardia? Yeah. Now, does albuterol cause tachycardia? Yeah. Because of them them beta properties, right? But what comes first, the chicken or the egg? They're, They're tachycardic because they can't catch their breath. If you give them something to open that bronchial tree up, they bring in more oxygen, that heart rate's going to come down. Does that make sense? <clears throat> About five minutes after patient, use an inhaler, repeat the vital signs and your focused assessment. So, focused assessment is obviously going to be listening to breath sounds, things of that nature, right? Because you're focusing in on the problem. Yeah. One to two word, two to three word dyspnea. Do we understand what that means? They can't say but one or two words at a time because they just can't catch their breath. We're not doing IVs yet. All right, acute pulmonary edema. What do you think you're going to do for that? Give them oxygen, right? Position of comfort. Pulmonary edema, position of comfort, if they've got fluid in their lungs, what's gonna what's not gonna be the position of comfort? Laying flat, right? They're gonna be upright. And why does we say with the with the pulmonary edema, with the chest pains, why is position of comfort important? If you calm them down, then what happens to their heart rate? Therefore, decreasing the amount of oxygen they have to have. We're not doing IVs yet. Now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but the, and the problem with asthma is getting the air out of the lungs, the exhalation. The status asthmaticus is that Roman that did what? Really bad. You had really bad asthma. Yeah. It's a true emergency. And again, those those bronchioles are going to spasm and swell, completely shut eventually, and they're going to have what's called that silent chest. You definitely want to have. Advanced life support on the scene for an asthma attack. An anaphylaxis or anaphylactic reaction. What do they have to have? Got to have epi. First, whatever they're reacting to, you want to make sure that that's out of the equation. And if they're having an anaphylactic shock, you treat them with a diesel bolus, right? get on that pedal so you get them to the hospital but they have to have epinephrine to absolutely live ABCs and again I'm not I'm, I'm flipping through all these things cuz so some of this applies to the advanced class and we'll come back and talk about more but um, at the EMT level the management of all these things are primarily the same right position of comfort and oxygen and I will add this For the PE, the pulmonary embolism, and I'd appreciate it if everybody'd write this down. As an EMT and as an advanced EMT and as a paramedic, even, the best thing that you could do for a PE patient is to recognize it early. If you drag your feet, again, five to ten percent are like fatal immediately, right? You need to recognize that this is a P.E. And I'll even tell you, and you'll hear it when dispatch drops a call. We by such-such having complaining of uh, chest pain, difficulty breathing. And then you'll hear the dispatcher come back and say, had a surgery last week. Or have a history recently of breaking a leg or whatever. And that, poof, your mind will click on that and you'll say, P.E.? Even though you're not even the one running the call probably, but... Um, Either way, early recognition is is the best thing that you could do for a PE patient. Plural effusion. What's the problem there? Bless you. Fluid, right? And which patients are we probably looking at? Cancer patients. Cancer patients. There you go. We don't do IVs yet. What's hemoptysis? Carbon dioxide. Hyperventilation could be a life threatening illness or it could be panic or anxiety. Never place a paper bag over a patient's mouth and nose. Why do people used to do that for hyperventilating? Because they think that they're getting in that paper bag and it back into the Okay. You're right, but let's think about that. You breathe into a paper bag, you exhale carbon dioxide, right? What makes us breathe? A buildup of carbon dioxide. So we're inhaling the carbon dioxide right back, right? Which is going to make us do what? Breathe more, yeah. But that's the problem, right? Yeah. So why don't we do that? <laughs> there you go. That might be a, a side benefit, but I think a lot of it is has a psychological effect on the patient. Put them on a non-rebreathing mask. That's giving them oxygen. And the more oxygen you get in, the more carbon dioxide you get rid of. Right? So. Don't do that. Airway obstructions. If it's an adult or a child and they have Something in their airway, but they're coughing pretty pretty effectively. What do you do? Leave them alone, right? Talk to them, encourage them to keep coughing. What if they're doing that universal sign, maybe not making any noise whatsoever? Well, we don't call it Heimlich though. The abdominal thrust. That's right. Yeah. And then our while you're doing the the uh, ooh, the abdominal thrust patient goes unconscious what do you do put down. on the ground and then yeah. and like go three. but you're skipping something as soon as they go unconscious and you gently put them on the ground somebody needs to it? call 911. 911 even though you are 911 you gotta just keep that in mind yeah. so, all right, so then what do you do You visualize, Visualize right, the airway before you ventilate every time. But basically you'll do CPR now, except you visualize the airway before you ventilate every time. Just then passing out might have relaxed the muscles that surround the trachea to the point to where it come loose. It happens. I had one one time where they tried to get him. It wasn't, he was choking, it wasn't fully uh, closed up. He kept telling us he was fine, he was fine. Told me, said, "All right, so you drink, you drink a couple of sips of water, and we'll go." And he couldn't do it. And then tell me he went to drink, you come right back up. Hmm. So we stay there till he drank a half glass of water. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. okay. he was he was talking there, he was talking. He was kind of you could tell he was straining a little bit. He we was standing up, he we was talking to him, and he kept telling us he was fine. He said, "When you drink that water, we'll go." Hmm. So we stayed there about twenty minutes. Hey, as long as it works. I ran a child that had swallowed a quarter. A quarter. Parents called me because they had swallowed a quarter, but the child was fine, and I was thinking it was probably not really anything to it. The child was perfectly fine. I was the only one distressed, you know, because it was probably who knows what time it was, but I was sleeping. Got all the way up because it had to go to Atlanta, you know. Had to go to CHOA, so it was at CHOA. And sure enough, before I finished the paperwork or whatever, the nurse comes out and showed me an x ray. Pretty as you can please. Quarter was standing up right above that glottic opening. So the x ray, you could see the quarter full faced, but all it would have taken was for that thing to fall over, and I'd have had a baby that couldn't breathe. And I'd have been back to Amherst by myself. So, yeah. I could breathe and everything was.